0: You're listening to TIP.
1: People think that if they come up with a widget that is 5% or 10% better, that that's going to be a great way to move the dial people are going to get excited about that. The reality is they aren't. You have to come up with something that is an order of magnitude more effective.
2: Man, am I excited to bring you today's episode with Frederick Karist? Frederick is the executive vice chairman, chief operating officer, and co-founder of Okta. He's the author of the new book Zero to IPO: A Guide to Building Startups, featuring insights from some of the world's most successful and recognizable entrepreneurs. Alongside his roles at Okta, he also serves as chairman and co-founder of Herophilus, a platform drug discovery company. Frederick and I sit down to chat about how he built Okta to be a multi-billion-dollar company how Okta was able to bounce back from a 70% revenue miss back in 2011. Yes, you heard that right, a 70% revenue miss, how Okta has been able to compete with big tech behemoths like Microsoft, Frederick's three rules for living a successful and fulfilling life, how he and his company are able to filter out the stock price to focus on the business, and much more. After having the opportunity to chat with Frederick, it's no wonder that he has had the success he has had over the years. So I'm sure you will pick up on some valuable nuggets during our conversation. With that, sit back and relax and maybe pull out your notepad to take some notes as I hope you enjoy this thoughtful discussion with Frederick Karist.
0: You're listening to
2: Millennial Investing by the Investor's Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today, I am joined by Okta co-founder and COO, Frederick Karist. Frederick, thank you for joining me
1: today. Thanks for me here.
2: Frederick, let's get right to it. Now, you co-founded Okta in 2009, and today the company has a market cap of $20 billion. As a guy from the small town in the Midwest, I have to ask, what has the experience of founding a multi-billion dollar company been like for you? And in the early days, did you ever imagine it becoming just so big?
1: Well, when you put it that way, it certainly uh, gives me room for pause. Look, when we started the company, I think entrepreneurship is great for a lot of reasons that I know we're going to talk about a little in today's podcast. We saw a huge opportunity, my co-founder Todd McKinnon and I, to help organizations as they were adopting this new technology, which in 2009, when we started, was called Software as a Service SaaS. It's now called Enterprise Cloud and has all sorts of other fancy terms. And you know, we thought it was a better way for most companies to consume most new technology, but they needed a better way of integrating all this. And we thought we had a good idea. Certainly, roll the clock forward. Today, there's 5,000 employees. It's a billion and a half revenue business growing 50% plus year over year with 15,000 customers. I could not have written that. So, if you'd given me all those stats when we started, I would have taken them in a heartbeat. But today, it feels like we're in good shape, but I think there's a huge opportunity ahead. And, and that's what uh, that's what's very exciting for us.
2: For those not familiar with Okta, could you give us just a quick rundown on what the company does in layman's terms?
1: Yes, of course. Okta is... uh, We're the global leader in enterprise identity. So there are two big components to our business. The first one is what we call workforce identity. So if you're an employee at a large organization or a sector of the government, you're using uh, modern cloud technology. You're using maybe Gmail for email or Salesforce.com for CRM. Well, getting access to all that information and doing that in a very easy way as an employee while at the same time making sure that it's very secure for the employer is one of the things we do. So that's workforce identity management. That's about two-thirds of our business growing just about 40% year over year. So it's a good business and it's where we started. And that was kind of the core of it. The second part of our business has really taken off since we've been public over the last five years. I think when we went public, our, our total addressable market was about $18 billion. Today, that's quadrupled but the customer identity management part of the business, that second part of the business was actually zero when we went public. It wasn't even a thing. It's now grown to be about a $30 billion total addressable market. That is digital transformation, the most overused term in the industry. What it really just means is everyone's trying to find a better way to interact with their customers, their partners, their vendors, their suppliers. So if you have a login to... True Blue, the JetBlue Affinity Program, or you log into MLB.com to stream the World Series, or you go to a Disney Entertainment Park and you log in to check your tickets, all of that identity infrastructure, we run that as well. That's a big business for us. It's about a third of our business now, up from about zero when we went public five years ago, growing 60 70% year over year. And again, something that as more and more organizations just look to use the internet for more and more of their commerce, it's a, it's a huge opportunity for us out there.
2: Yeah, it definitely seems like the markets you're operating in are becoming more and more of a need as you grow yourself. And, you know, I mentioned you started Okta in 2009. You mentioned that the company now has 5,000 employees. So your role has obviously drastically changed as the company has grown. So I'm curious, what was the driving force for you to just stick with the company for so long and still be with them today?
1: Well, a couple of things. First of all, I'm having a good time. So you got to make sure that you're getting up every morning excited about what you're doing. And you know, for me, it's still a lot of fun. I get to work with some fantastic people every day. I've gotten to build some amazing relationships with really forward-thinking, C-level executives at all sorts of companies who are trying to move their businesses forward with technology. We're on the forefront of innovation. There's never a dull moment. So first of all, first and foremost, you got to do what what makes you happy and what you enjoy. And I still get up every day early in the morning, exciting about going to work. So that's a good thing. But secondly, also, when you're trying to build a business the way we have in in enterprise technology or enterprise software, you know, you want a big opportunity out there and something where you really think you could have a a big impact. You know, there's, I think that uh, software as a service or enterprise cloud, as it's now called. I think enterprise software is great. It's what I've done my entire career. I got a software, a computer science degree in the late 90s. And since then, kind of moved to the business side of things. But I've always been in enterprise software. I think it's very exciting. I think it's very interesting. And I think it does a lot of great things for the world. I also started writing software in a client-server world on-premises in the old days. And that moved to enterprise cloud. I was fortunate to be working at Salesforce and had a front row seat to drinking a lot of Kool-Aid in the early 2000s when the company went public. And just saw a lot of value in organizations using subscribing, right? Renting software over the internet as opposed to installing it themselves. ROI, the return on investment is higher, the TCO, the total cost of ownership is lower. And frankly, a TTV time to value is just so much quicker that it just makes sense for most companies to rent most software over the internet if it's just not core software that drives their own businesses and you know we find ourselves today in a market where when we started this 13 years ago everyone said putting identity in the cloud that's crazy that's never going to work identity management would typically been a, a sleepy industry i think the total TAM for what we we're doing was rated at 2 or 4 billion or something by Gartner Fast forward today, it's an $80 billion TAM that's growing, you know, 10, 20% year over year, where we're the clear market leaders with a huge opportunity ahead. As a business executive, there's not much more exciting situation you could find yourselves in than where we are today. And so, you know, I'm very proud of the results. I think we've done a fantastic job. The team's worked very hard over the last 13, 14 years in building the company. But frankly, I think our, you know, the next three, five, 10 years are going to be way more interesting, exciting. and, And that's the fun part for me. Very
2: cool. Now, I got a chance to read your book, Zero to IPO. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But before we dive into some of the details, I couldn't help but notice in your book, you mentioned that your dad was the CFO at a number of publicly traded companies. Not too many people can say that You know, their father just is like so successful and is able to learn so much from him as you grow up. So what are some of the biggest lessons you learned from him?
1: Yeah, absolutely. My father was a uh, the immigrant, immigrant entrepreneur story. He came to America from France in his early twenties with a suitcase in his hand and five hundred dollars in his pocket. He tells me now he's like it was like two hundred fifty bucks in his pocket. Fine, let's just say it was five hundred dollars in his pocket. Didn't really speak the language, and you know built a, an amazing career for himself, and uh, was a six time public company CFO, as you said. What did I learn? I mean, I learned a lot of things. First of all, when we started the company, I was the CFO and I'd spent my entire career trying not to become a CFO because of course you don't want to do exactly what your dad did. So he found that endlessly entertaining and kind of chided me for a long time and always said, oh, let me know if you need me to review your books. You know, when you're a small company, there's not much to review. It's like, how much are you spending and how much you have left? But I was the CFO for the first two years. I'm glad I got out of that job and I was able to hire much more seasoned professionals. So then I didn't have to take the heckling anymore at home, which was good. I learned a lot of things. First of all, just organization and efficiency, just understanding kind of where things are and, and how to build a plan and how to follow that plan how to adjust those things. I remember when I was six years old, I was able to sign my name because that's how I got a library card back in the day when we went to the library. And the day he found out from my mom that I could sign my name, he took me down to the bank because it turns out that all you need to open a checking account back in the day was also to be able to sign your name. And he's like, well, you can sign your name. I know because you did it for the library card so you can do it now. So by the time I was six, I had a checking account with one of those little books where you would write the balance of like, I have this much and this much went out and here's the interest. And so, I, we're certainly taught a lot of good financial education at a young age. The other thing I would just say is focus on hard work. I mean, my dad just got up every day, worked very hard, built an amazing career. Those things don't happen by yourself. Certainly, there's plenty of luck involved, but there's also just a lot of hard work. And I think that focus and that dedication and determination certainly served me and my siblings very, very well. And then I think the last thing is just to have a, a big dream. You know, My father always had had this vision of where he would go and how he would do it. And, and certainly he did a fantastic job, you know, personally and professionally for himself, but also I think instilled in me and my siblings, the idea of having big dreams and going for those big goals. And look, if you set a high bar, even if you miss it by a little bit, you're still going to be in really good shape. And I think those are a few of the big takeaways.
2: That's funny. You mentioned going to the bank. I remember my dad taking me to the bank as a child to open up my first checking and savings account. So it's pretty funny that memories tends to stick with us, even though it seems like a pretty basic thing to do nowadays. (laughs) Now, things weren't always so smooth from the beginning and starting your company. You tell the story in your book that you presented to the board that you missed your revenue target by 70% back in 2011, which obviously didn't make the board and investors too happy if I had to guess. How were you able to bounce back from that?
1: Yeah, well, that's a true story. Some of those dates are indelibly imprinted in your brain. It was June 30th, 2011. So at the time, our we hadn't changed our fiscal year to be a Feb 1 fiscal year yet. So the fiscal year was the calendar year. So the end of our second quarter was June 30. Turns out we were also trying to close our Series B financing at that time. So, not only did we miss the quarter by 70%, but I was talking to the theoretical new investor who had given us a term sheet. And he said, Oh, yeah. So, how'd the quarter end? You know, before I give you guys all this money. And I said to him on the phone, Well, we missed by 70%. He said, 17%. I said, No, 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 70%. He's like, That's a huge problem. I'm going to be there in 60 minutes. And he drove up from his office. So, you know, it was a tough time. I think one of the big reasons that, I told that story and I had a lot of very successful entrepreneurs tell similar stories in the book is because there's this impression from the outside that uh, these companies, you know, Meta or Amazon or, or Salesforce or even Okta, if we're fortunate enough to be considered in that group, they were destined for greatness from the beginning. And that entrepreneurs struggling at home, well, it's just very different and they're never going to succeed and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, all of these quote unquote, amazing predestined companies, they've all... Almost died twenty times, and so I think just demystifying that process and letting everyone know that it's hard for everyone all the time was one of the goals. Certainly, I think in that situation that was very very hard. We were able to bounce. I mean, first of all, we almost didn't bounce back. To answer your question, 2011 almost was the end of the company. We were fortunate to raise that Series B round of financing thanks to David Wyden and Vinod Kosla and the team at Coastal Ventures who who really pulled through for us and did a great job. But you know, we also had to kind of take a hard look in the mirror. And figure some things out. It turns out we had one big piece of the puzzle wrong, which was our go to market strategy. We were focused on small and medium businesses who, first of all, don't pay you a lot of money. Second of all, didn't have a big identity management problem. It turns out the bigger problem was in the enterprise. And then once we pivoted to that, and once we got a little more leadership on board, and it wasn't just me and Todd trying to do everything, those were two of the big reasons that things kind of turned around. But we almost didn't bounce back. It was almost the defining moment and we wouldn't be here talking about that, not talking about Okta anymore at this time.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon? And millions of other queries right at your fingertips. Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say,
0: hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship.
2: This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. As a technology company, you're often competing against some of the biggest companies in the world. Today, that includes Apple, Google, Amazon, some of the ones you mentioned. How are smaller companies like what Okta was in the past able to fend off competition that has what feels like unlimited pools of capital at their disposal?
1: Yeah. In fact, the biggest one that we compete with, you didn't even mention, is Microsoft. And so for us, you know, that's, first of all, as an entrepreneur, that's quite something because I remember as a kid growing up writing on Microsoft operating systems and now competing with them as the number one competitor in their market, who is beating them, by the way, in the Gartner Magic Quadrants and everything else. That's pretty exciting as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I think the number one thing, frankly, is just focus. I mean, those companies that you mentioned, they have so much going on that they really, they're a Uh, basically a private equity portfolio of balanced properties at this point that they're all trying to push forward. There's competing priorities inside there. There's different initiatives that the CEO has. The different GMs are running good businesses, but it's really about what does the CFO want to talk about at earnings? And that's going to be the focus. Big difference for us is we have 5,000 people and all they do every day is get up and think about identity management. And they think about how they can help our customers move forward and adopt all of this modern technology. And I think that's a huge advantage. Now, certainly, you know, is it something that we think about every day? Yeah, of course. We live in a competitive environment and we got to make sure that our products are working well and that we're driving more value for our customers. But, you know, it's like the race car drivers, if you talk to any of them who drive like a NASCAR or something at 200 miles an hour, they'll say, yeah, well, you have to know where that wall is right next to you, but you don't want to stare at it because otherwise you're going to crash into it. So you have to have a plan and a program and a vision of where you're going. You have to be aware of what's going on in the competitive environment because we're selling to companies and Microsoft's trying to sell them software too. But at the same time, I think that that focus and that determination really to put customer success first. I think that has uh, really played out well for us and, and frankly, for our customers. And you know, so far, so good.
2: Right off the bat in your book, Zero to IPO, you list three rules to live by. Could you discuss those three rules for the audience?
1: Yeah, happy to. And in fact, Clay, the reason I put that in there is in case no one read anything else from the book, hopefully they would take away those three rules. The first one is Time is your most precious asset. So entrepreneurs, there's a lot coming at you when you're trying to build businesses. People have all sorts of ideas. You're trying to hire employees. You're trying to build products. You're trying to, you gotta realize that there are some things you should be doing, but there are some things you should not be doing. First of all, second of all, you need to prioritize what you're doing because only you know is most important. Great example of that is email. Email is largely what other people want you to do, not what you should be doing. And so thinking about where you should be spending your time is the most important thing. Right in line with that is number two, which is keep the main thing, the main thing. I had an amazing professor in grad school who gave me that very simple lesson. And I was like, wow, that's actually a pretty transformative. More than once a day when I'm in my office with other teammates, they will probably hear me say out loud, what is the most important thing I should be doing next? Because thinking about your priorities and again, trying to get rid of all the noise around that that is the key to really getting anything done and locking in to get specific projects done. And then the last thing is about sales. Nothing happens till somebody sells something. I think, you know, the CEO of yesteryear was a salesperson. The CEO of today or tomorrow is a technologist. What do technologists know a lot about technology? But they don't realize that you can't just sit in an ivory tower and build something and, you know, like the field of dreams, they will come in a lot of situations and particularly in the enterprise, you have to go out and sell that. And you're really going to only learn what you need to be building in detail when you start talking to prospects about what they need and what they want and how you're going to build that for them.
2: I really like the point to keep the main thing, the main thing. It reminds me of my co-host, Robert Leonard. He recently had Jay Papasan on the show and he wrote the book, The One Thing. And just another brilliant book that hits on that brilliant idea. Now, many people might be wondering whether starting a company is right for them. What do you think are some of the key traits to being a successful entrepreneur and starting a company?
1: Well, first of all, you got to want to do it. (laughs) So more than anything else, it's kind of the big unknown. So going out there and realizing that you're the only one who's going to decide what's going to happen today or tomorrow or the day after that. Thinking about the vision that you're going to have to have and that you're going to have to paint. We talked a little bit about sales just now. You know, convincing a lot of amazing people to come along for the ride—whether that's investors who are going to give you their money, whether that's employees who are going to leave their cushy jobs at Meta and Amazon and everywhere else to come and join you for, you know, piece of the vision in the future. Whether that's people, you know, your landlord, are they even going to rent you the office space that you need because you might run out of money the next day? All those kinds of things are very important and you need to get excited about that. The other thing is you need to have conviction. You need to have a vision and a plan of where you're going. That works for whether you're trying to build a a high growth technology company with a billion dollars of revenue or frankly, even open a bodega down on the corner, you need to have a plan and a vision of what you're trying to do and where you're trying to go and how you're going to get there. And then you need to paint that vision. And then you need to be able to execute. You can't just sit there and have all these great ideas and then not put them into play. So there's a number of those different things. Look, I think the if it is for you, I think the upside is amazing. I think it's a fantastic career. I think entrepreneurship has a lot of great skills and innately qualities that entrepreneurs get to benefit from. Things like self-determination and motivation and you know, excitement and energy, you know. And then frankly, you gotta remember entrepreneurship has basically created all the net job growth in the Western world over the last 50 years. Not only all the gross job growth, but also it's replaced all the jobs that we've lost from the dinosaurs of yesteryear. So it's a very important engine for the economy and something that I think the more we can get information into people's hands and give them the opportunity to be successful entrepreneurs, the better off we'll all be.
2: Growing up, did you always want to be an entrepreneur? I often wonder whether some people are almost born for it. Like it's almost in their DNA from the very beginning. Or do you think many of these traits are self-taught along the way?
1: You know, I had a number of companies that I started when I was younger and they all failed. When I was seven years old, I started a aluminum can recycling business. So I would go to my neighbor's house and, you know, for five cents, you could go down to the store and and bring them your cans and they'd give you a nickel for the recycled aluminum. And I had these posters. The poster said I was the can man and I would walk around with my little cart and I would split the five cents with my neighbors. So for every can I get two and a half, they get two and a half cents. I don't know how well that business went in the end. But that was the first one. Second one, I had a failed tennis racket restringing business in high school. I played a lot of tennis in France. It's one of the big sports. And I started restringing my own tennis rackets. And I started restringing other people's tennis rackets. And that business didn't go very well either. So certainly I had plenty of failures to start off with, but no I think it's something that probably has always been in my blood. It's something uh, I saw my dad do at certain points in his career. I had it in uh, the extended family. There were some pretty good examples and I thought it was interesting. So I you know, don't get me wrong, I've worked at large organizations. When I joined Salesforce in 2002, there was about 100 people there. The company grew to be, you know, 3000 people plus when I left. So I, you know, I learned a lot of good things there as well. I made some great friends and some great frankly Professional mentors who I still speak with very frequently today. But I do think it's one of those things that I'm probably... It's a defective gene that I have that I'm not going to be able to get rid of.
2: For those who are bold enough to start a business that disrupts the status quo of an industry, how much better does the product have to be over what currently exists in the market?
1: That is a very good point. And I'm glad you bring that up. People think that if they come up with a widget that is 5% or 10% better, that that's going to be a, a great way to move the dial people are going to get excited about that. The reality is they aren't. You have to come up with something that is an order of magnitude, more effective, efficient, that return on capital, drive in business, whatever it is, to really move the needle and have any chance. Look, if you come to me and you tell me that you know everyone complains all the time about their iPhone battery, if you came and gave me an iPhone battery that was 10% better, that's not something that anyone's going to invest in. If you showed up and said, I can triple the length of the iPhone battery... I bet Apple listened. So you really have to think about what is that massive step function, not just that rounding error that you're going to be able to add to that business.
2: You co-founded Okta with Todd McKinnon. While starting a company with two people can be much more manageable than going at it alone, going at it alongside a partner can bring its own set of challenges as well. So how did you know that Todd was the right partner for you?
1: Yeah, my co-founder, Todd McKinnon, is, is amazing. He and I met a long time ago, way before we decided to go into business together. The data is very clear for founding teams. I think Professor Ed Roberts, who's a professor of mine at MIT, came out with one of the seminal studies on this, indicating that really ideal founding teams are between two and four people. At one person, it's just too hard, the ups and the downs, and there's no one to bounce anything off. And then I think at five people plus, there's just too many people. There's too many cooks in the kitchen, right? You can't really get anything done or make any decisions. So, you know, there was two of us as co-founders today. We still run the company together and it's going very well. Certainly we have been in business for 13 years now. So I spent a lot of time with Todd and it's like any good relationship that you have with a significant other, a spouse, a good friend, a teammate, you know, someone you've known for 20 years, you get to know people pretty well and you get to understand kind of how they operate what they're thinking about, where they're going next. And in a lot of cases, it actually, frankly, cuts down on a lot of the back and forth because you can have very clear conversations. We also have a lot of trust and confidence and there's a lot of transparency in our conversations because we were both there when there was nothing else. We were both there in 2011 when we almost died a couple of times as a company. So at this point, I think the other person gets a lot of credit and the conversations are very high bandwidth. And there's a lot of trust that the other person is doing what they should be doing and so forth. So it's a very good relationship. I've been very fortunate to work with Todd for the last 13, 14 years. He's done an amazing job as the CEO of the company. And uh, yeah, I I couldn't have picked a better co-founder if i tried.
2: I love that. And I just can't help but wonder how people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are able to oversee and run so many successful companies and really not even feel like they're skipping a beat.
1: Yeah, that is a a great point. Right now, I am also the chairman and co-founder of a neurotherapeutics company. We're working to find new cures to central nervous system disease. We have some great breakthroughs in Alzheimer's and Rett syndrome to start with, a company called Herophilus. And uh, my co-founder there is actually one of my best friends for the last 25 years, an amazing professor named Saul Cato. And uh, Saul and I have known each other for so long, and have been such close friends that it's a different kind of partnership, actually, than I have with Todd, because Todd and I mainly have been business partners, whereas Saul and I can have also very high bandwidth conversations and skip a lot of steps, but in a completely different way. So you know, maybe I'll have to write my next book on different types of co-founders or things like that. <laughs>
3: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break. And we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do.
0: carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.
3: Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement.
2: In your book, you walk through essentially the whole process of taking your company from zero all the way to the IPO stage. And that includes receiving funding along the way. How should founders know when it's time to raise outside funding from new investors, such as through something like venture capital?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the great things of being an entrepreneur is you get to decide how you want to build your business. And certainly in the book, we zero to IPO, I talk a lot about you know, the vision and the mission that we had around high-tech entrepreneurship. A lot of the entrepreneurs I speak with in the book are folks who have raised institutional venture capital. So, you know, we can certainly talk about that. I just want to be clear though, there's a lot of other ways as an entrepreneur to build your business. First of all, I know a lot of people who are successful quote unquote serial entrepreneurs who build a company for a few years, they sell it, then they start another company, build it for a few years and sell it. You know, maybe they're experts in a specific industry or type of technology. That's a very good way to build a business. Another very good way is a cash flow. Back to the bodega. I mean, that's how those businesses are usually run. They don't raise institutional venture capital, certainly. But if you are going to raise institutional venture capital, you know that is a special beast in and of itself, certainly. Specifically, when founders know that it's time, that's a good question. I think if you ask a lot of different entrepreneurs, you'll get slightly different answers. And it'll be somewhere between when you have confidence in your business to when you see things working to when it's time to take it to the next step. I mean, I think all of those are, are probably probably... probably accurate. They probably depend a little bit on what kind of business, again, what the entrepreneur is trying to do, what the stage is, and what the industry is and what kind of products that you're building. But what I would probably say is, look, there's a lot of good use of outside capital. One of the biggest ones, obviously, is just accelerating the growth of your business. A lot of times you can reinvest the profits from your business into that business and keep growing it. But if you think that you're really onto something that is a big market, you know, and we're talking about a market that starts with a B, so billions of dollars. Second of all, where there are some large incumbent organizations, like you we mentioned a number of them earlier on, you could be going up in an industry against Amazon and Alphabet and Meta and all the rest of them. Third, a big growing industry is a big one. You know, it's gonna be very hard to go into an industry like chip manufacturing where you're gonna need to upfront have tens of billions of dollars just to build the fabs and go and compete with Intel. So I think there's a lot of different components to it. But yeah, I would say that when you have a lot of confidence and you know that it's time to accelerate to hit that next level, that's always a good time to start talking to folks about outside capital.
2: One question that just came to my mind, oftentimes when you raise funding, that leads to dilution of your own equity and dilution of your voting rights in the company. I'm curious if that was a difficult hurdle for you to make, given that you were giving up some of that control of the company that you started from the very beginning.
1: Well, it really wasn't because that was the plan. So again, we could have built a, a cash flow business and there's nothing wrong with being the 100% owner of the local store. I and mean, that's great. In fact, that's how America was built largely. But if you plan to build a high growth technology company, if you plan to build a public company, which we always knew that was one of our goals to build a large independent public software technology company, ultimately at some point, you're gonna have to give up some of the equity and that's part of the deal. You know, first of all, when it comes to the equity and the voting rights, I would really focus on the equity. Voting rights really don't come into play until much later. I can't remember ever having had a real vote as a private company. People ask me this a lot. Well, how many board members and so forth? Look, if you're coming into and it's going to be a voting story as a private company, things are already in a bad place. And frankly, even when you become public, there's not a lot of voting going on. I mean, the votes are all in line. Certainly over time, when you've been around 50 years, like the voting matters. We've been in public for five years, and we there's still not a lot of voting. Equity is important, though, absolutely. And the way I think about that is, look, you're trying to build a bigger pie. Ultimately, you want a smaller piece of a bigger pie. That's what you're trying to do. You can own the entire pie, and then you sell no equity, and you run that business. But if you're trying to build a really big business, it's going to be a much bigger pie. And naturally, you're going to have a smaller percentage of that. But ultimately, that's going to be more valuable. And then also, you get to bring a lot of amazing stakeholders around the table with you. I mean, it's not as though you're selling your stake, you're you're selling a, a percentage of the company and some stock to people who aren't going to add value, right? In theory, you're bringing in others who are experts in the business, the industry, the geography, whatever it is that can really add to it. And ultimately, it should be additive to the whole picture of the capital that you're bringing in.
2: That makes sense. Now, with Okta is as big it is, as it is today, you've learned the importance of hiring the right people and instilling the right culture within the company. And obviously, developed to be a very effective leader yourself, given your company's success to date. I'm curious what your biggest lessons are that you've learned over the years on what it takes to be an effective leader.
1: Yeah. Well, you talked about it first and foremost, right? It's people you know, we are in my business and in software businesses in general, human resources is a pretty funny term, right? It's like you're talking about people as human resources. Well, it's because back in the day when they had factories, they had other resources and then they brought in people and they became the human resources. Well, in our world, it's just people. I don't have any factories. I don't have heavy machinery. North of 50 cents of every dollar that we spend is on hiring, attracting, developing, growing the best people in the world. And so that's a big focus for us. First and foremost, I think that everyone has, you know, there's a lot, of different successful leadership styles, so it's a, an interesting question. But I'm always hesitant to say this is the way you need to lead, or that's not a good approach. Frankly, different things work for different people, I and mean, different leaders have their own approach. Now, ultimately, I think there are a few things have to be true. First of all, you got to be genuine to whatever you're trying to do, because you're going to have to do it day in and day out. And you know, in our case, we're fortunate; we're still in business, you know, over ten years later. And so, you have to be living that every day. Second of all, you got to think about culture proactively ahead of time. And it's not just what you're going to say and some words you're going to put up on the whiteboard, but you got to live it every single day. For us, we spend a lot of time working on those things. Love our customers. We talk about innovation, talk about transparency. We talk about empowering our people. We talk about teamwork. We talk about integrity. These are things that you also want to repeat over and over, especially when you're our size growing as fast as we are. We add hundreds of new employees every quarter. So every quarter, there's people who don't even know what the culture is. Third of all, it's not about me anymore. I mean, it was when it was me and Todd. It was pretty easy. Either Todd was doing something or I was doing something or no one was doing it. Well, now, right, there's thousands of employees out there. Most customer conversations happen without me there. So culture ultimately is also about, you know, how are other people going to behave when you're not there? Because it's got to become their culture, not my culture, not Todd's culture, but the culture of all the employees and what we want to have. So now the last point I'll make is for me personally, I just try and hire the best people I can. And I try and give them as much room to run as I can. And then I see my job as how do I make them successful? How do I take down roadblocks? How do I get things out of their way? they need help with strategy or they have specific questions, I'm happy to give them that feedback, but I'm certainly not a micromanager. As you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, when we started the company, I did everything. I was the CFO. I was the GC. I was the chief information officer. I was the chief security officer. I was the head of sales. Now I have none of those jobs, by the way. And we are that much more successful. Why? Because I was able to find amazing professionals, much more successful and focused on all those areas than I am. I was able to convince them to come and join our company and to run these big parts of it. And I could not be happier. And for all stakeholders, that makes us all much more successful as a group.
2: Now on our show we talk about stocks and the stock market quite a bit so I can't help but mention how Octa stock has performed over the last couple of years and it's you know moved alongside many other tech stocks you know pre-covid the stock was trading north of $130 a share rose all the way to nearly $300 and now sits around 125 with how big your company is how are you able to help tune out just the massive volatility in the stock market out of the company and make sure that people are focused on the day-to-day operations?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things being a public company, right? Is there's a stock market out there and there are the vagaries of the stock market. So I think there's a few things to that. First of all, you know, specifically to this stock market, look, it's a pendulum that swings back and forth. And it swings from, especially if you're in a high growth technology company, it swings from growth to profitability, back to growth, interest rates are involved. Certainly right now, there's a lot of external factors with a a massive war that's still going on in Russia and, and Ukraine, unfortunately, that's impacting a lot of things. So you know, as a high growth company, I think we have a very good plan that we've laid out to the street that I'm very confident in of FY26, where we'll have $4 billion of revenue that will be growing 35% plus each year from now until then. And that when we get there, it'll be 20% plus, you know, FCF margins. And I feel really good about that. I think that's a great place to be. And we're tracking very well to that. And, you know, frankly, if we do that, it will be exceptional uh, success. So that's the first thing at the macro level. You know, when you double click into the stock price, you can't look at the stock price every day. I mean, it's not helpful. First of all, there's only two days when the stock price matters. It's the day you buy and the day you sell. And I tell everyone, look, when you're coming to Okta, we're going to pay you well because you need to put a roof over your head. You need to send your kids to college. Like life's expensive. We understand that. But also, you're basically buying low. And whether that's $130 or $300, look, I'm not going to be a prognosticator of stock. If I were, I would have a different job. I'd be on Wall Street. But you know, I'll tell you that if you're going to buy and hold this stock for three or five or 10 years, you're going to do very well. Had you bought the stock when it went public in April of 2017, today it would be even at $125. That's a 700% return. I feel pretty good about that for shareholders overall. The final thing is when I talk to prospective employees about this, I said, look, you have to believe in the long term vision. It doesn't matter. I mean, unless otherwise you're going to be day trading. I think our long term vision is very, very good. I think the markets that we're in are very big markets. I think the tailwinds that we're riding right now, the massive trends of number one, hybrid IT transformation. Number two, a digital transformation when adopting more digital technology to better interact with their customers, partners, vendors, suppliers. Number three, the underpinnings of zero trust security, which are now prevalent everywhere. These are very big waves. They are in the early innings and we are very well positioned to capitalize on them. Again, I'm very excited about the progress we've made. Look, billion and a half revenue, 5,000 employees in 12 years, I'll take that in a heartbeat. But if I roll the clock forward, these markets are $80 billion and growing fast. We're the clear leader. There's a lot of incumbent legacy on premises software that needs to be ripped and replaced over the next decade, and you know i'm I'm very excited about the opportunity that we have and the markets we're in, so yeah, I mean you know the stock market is a real deal and and if you're a public company, you got to deal with that, but overall i'm I'm very excited about the position we're in today
2: very exciting. Frederick, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Congratulations with all of your success with Okta and the launch of your new book. If you enjoyed this conversation, for those of you in the audience, check out his new book, Zero to IPO. Before we close out the episode, I'd like to give you, Frederick, the opportunity to give any thoughts and a handoff to your book.
1: I appreciate that, Clay. I just want to say thank you very much for having me here today. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited about the book. I'm glad that it's launching. You know, It's the field guide effectively that I wish I had had when I'd started Okta. So we tried to make it very practical. And then finally, I'll just say that it's for a good cause. All the profits for the book are going to fantastic nonprofit organizations, uh, Build and the Hidden Genius Project. One's national, the other one's in my backyard here in Oakland, who use entrepreneurship and leadership skills to help Black youth and youth from under Resource communities more broadly, stay in school using some of those skills. So, you know, there's no better way for me to try and share what I've learned with the entrepreneurs out there while at the same time putting it back into the future generations as well. So,
2: wonderful. Thank you so much, Frederick.
1: Thanks, Clay. Have a good day.
2: All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time.